0: as I was listening to you uh, all come into the hall with your different ways of walking, you know, the little cat feet, and then the thunk, 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 and then the kind of, you know, drag, and the, you know, slow, and the fast, and all the rest of it. (coughs) Made me think of how many people have come in and out of this hall since IMS was founded. Thousands? tens of thousands i don't know and then i thought about how often i've come in and out of this hall thousands and thousands of times huh. and there's something about uh, walking into the hall walking through that walking room as, as soon as uh, i come in off the corridor there into uh, you know the shoe room my mind goes Shh. You're here. You're here. You're coming coming in again to this uh, sacred place, really. We've had uh, quite a few days now. Uh, I know for some of you it's been a bit of a wild ride. <sighs> oh, those minds, you know so wild and so difficult to tame the Buddha gives a number of different images for the untrained mind one of the ones he uses is that of a wild tusker which is I guess a male elephant that just kind of like rampages around and does what it wants and you know Some of the the images from different Buddhist traditions actually have a series of uh, pictures where they depict this process of developing and training the mind as a series of images of uh, animals and their relative tractability. And they all start with the same beginning kind of frame, which is it's out of control and it's doing its own thing. And maybe there's a little human somewhere in the picture that's like running after it, trying to, trying to figure out how to get it to respond to what they would uh, like to do. Or uh, maybe even just trying to get it to uh, stop so the human can catch up to it and try to get its attention. So, so far this week, we've been working with this wholesome state of metta. And the understanding in our tradition, of course, is that this is an important quality of mind in many different ways. And in my first talk, I discussed the through line in the Buddha's teachings of the Eightfold Path and how uh, starting with this discernment of the unwholesome and the wholesome qualities of mind that um, and then moving on to uh, wise intention the importance of infusing the rest of the practice path with this uh, discernment about what it is that we're cultivating but also this very wholesome skillful powerful quality of goodwill and in our tradition, there's a whole set of teachings around what are called the Brahma-viharas, which are also called the heavenly abodes. Brahma-viharas, heavenly abodes. So Brahma was uh, kind of the, the the head god in the um, mythology, religious uh, imagery and mythology of the Buddhist time. Brahma was the was the God that was uh, closest to being in charge of what was going on, although the understanding also was well. He too was impermanent, and uh, someday to his great surprise, uh, Brahma <laughs> would no longer be Brahma. But this idea that um, there was this this realm where this, this being uh, from which this being uh, exercised governance and control was one that was at play in the uh, imagination and imagery of the, the Buddhist time. So in this calling these states of particular states of mind the Brahma Viharas, there's a pointing to the fact that there are certain states of mind or certain quality of heart that can be dealt, developed to the point where they actually become a refuge of sort for the mind, that the mind can actually learn to dwell more and more fully internally in these realms of goodwill, starting with metta, and then can also learn to dwell in other related realms which are offshoots of metta or which support metta. So the four heavenly abodes, or the four Brahma-viharas, are metta, to start. And then there is karuna, which is usually translated as compassion. Then there's mudita, which is uh, translated as empathetic joy or sympathetic joy. And lastly, there's Upeka, which is equanimity, which is a kind of balance and steadiness of mind that arises out of uh, wisdom, of seeing deeply into how things are. So in our understanding, in this uh, tradition of Buddhism, metta is understood to be the first thing to be cultivated. So Oren gave a nice image this morning when he was talking about how in the practice of Metta, you start where it's easy with the self or benefactor, and uh, almost as if that particular pool fills up with Metta, and then the overflow of that pool uh, goes down to uh, you know the friend, and the overflow of that pool, once it's full, goes to the neutral person, and so on. It was a lovely image. It pointed to um, the progressive nature of the development so it's somewhat like that in the cultivation of these other brahmaviharas that you want to develop a foundation with metta with goodwill and then you can move on to uh separately develop and cultivate these other three compassion empathetic joy and equanimity so for each of those other three brahmaviharas there's a particular set of phrases that you would use to help support your cultivation, and there's a particular uh, suggested order of being that you would work with. So, for instance, uh, the first being you would normally work with with compassion would be uh, somebody who you're aware is suffering. And the phrases then would be something like, May you be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Right? You And you can see in that phrase that this is an example of this quality of caring, which is the nature of metta. But now it's being turned in the direction of a recognition that there's suffering here in this situation. And the heart-mind... Uh, recognizes that, resonates with that suffering, and spontaneously reacts with the desire that that, that suffering be relieved. So it's sometimes de- described as a, a, a trembling of a responsive heart. And, you know, we could do multiple days of teaching and practice just with this, this property of compassion. Compassion. And it would be time very well, very well spent. Because there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of very interesting um, aspects to compassion. Some of which you might find rather surprising from our usual perspective. So one example of that would be that compassion is actually a pleasant, state and not an unpleasant one. Do you find that surprising, that compassion is a pleasant state and not an unpleasant one? So, you know, it's organically surprising, perhaps, because in order to uh, practice compassion, we're actually turning our mind towards suffering, which means that we're allowing the fact that there is suffering, that there uh, is difficulty, there is distressed to, to, to fully register. But then the mind has enough stability when uh, compassion is well established and purified that the mind actually doesn't get drug into the suffering. It doesn't get dragged down by the, the suffering. It doesn't lose its own uh, sense of uh, the safety of metta when it contacts those challenging circumstances in one's own experience or in the experience of others. So in that stability of mind there, you see the presence of uh, equanimity, this fourth of the Brahma-viharas, that upon initial consideration you might go, What? What's that in there? Okay, I can see the other three, but what about that last one? Uh, What's that got to do with the other three? Well, that's, that's the wisdom aspect that puts down a kind of psycho-emotional uh, stabilizer that allows the other three to really be practiced in depth uh, without the mind becoming unrealistic or uh, imbalanced in how it's going about it. So the, the third of the Brahma-viharas, just to round out the description, so uh, you will have heard this teaching on the retreat, is what's called mudita, which is known as empathetic and or sympathetic joy. And here is where this quality of metta or, or goodwill or care is actually turned towards the recognition of the happiness Uh, and uh, success or well-being of a particular being, for instance. And instead of the mind doing what minds sometimes do, when you recognize somebody else has got something going on, and kind of doing a little bit of recoil into envy or comparing mind or that kind of thing, instead... uh, the expression of metta and recognition to somebody else's success is right on, right on, right on, you know, <laughs> may it continue, may it continue, may your happiness and well-being continue, may your good fortune increase. those kinds of phrases would be mudita phrases, and interestingly enough the the cultivation of mudita is actually consider to be the most challenging of all. Is that a surprise? Not a surprise? It's a it's a a really wonderful practice and kind of a favorite topic of mine. But I'm not going to go into it more. <laughs> So what I wanted to to talk about is how these four qualities, when they're taken together, actually provide uh, a pretty uh, well-distributed toolkit for just about any uh, condition that human beings can experience. So you've got the developed capacity to care. Then you've got the uh, response to... Uh, suffering, then you've got the recognition of happiness and well-being, and then then you've got stability to, to keep things on the rails internally. So these are very powerful internal assets. And they cover just about everything that you could meet in the course of a human life. Now tonight I want to talk about Uh, an aspect of compassion and how it uh, can help support forgiveness. I wasn't at Sharon's talk this afternoon, but when I came in, Oren said, Sharon, somebody asked a, a question that kind of broached this subject matter and and Sharon respond to it, and then said, "When he's going to talk about that in her talk tonight?" And I had planned to do it because it's a very interesting, interesting area, isn't it? There are a lot of religious traditions that touch on this area, forgiveness. Those uh, those of you who have been raised in you know religious traditions. Probably recognize this theme. Some religions more than others. Um, It's a a big theme in Christianity. I know for sure Jesus was very big on this. Um, I I think one of his uh, his teachings was, you know, you should forgive someone seventy times seven. Am I right on that quote? I mean that was a uh, a rather virtuoso act of forgiveness uh, in extremis from the, the cross. You know, Father forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay. That that being was doing some powerful practice <laughs> that that's what could be coming forward under those circumstances. So you could say the capacity to actually have a wise uh, relationship to uh, being on the wrong end of uh, actions that cause suffering is a sign of spiritual development, spiritual maturity. And you could say that the recognition of being on the other end of the causes and conditions that uh, result in suffering is uh, can be a spur to greater understanding and spiritual development due to the realization that one has done some stuff that's caused harm and the uh, has formed the desire uh, not to repeat that so it's a potent area and I know in the practice meetings a number of you have have talked about stuff that's come up um, uh, things that have come forward in the sittings for you either a recognition of oh you know I'm just realizing now uh, you know I did something and uh, I really wish I I hadn't I wish I could undo it or sometimes the other version is you know I'm having a lot of anger come up or I'm having a lot of fear come up and uh, you know, memories are coming up in relationship to to some circumstance that that happened earlier in my life or some behavior by some one or some ones that caused me harm. So then, how do we hold this whole area of investigation around the topic of suffering? So, just to start, imagine if there was, uh, what it would be like if there was no way to be discontinuous with past errors or harm. If there was no possibility of discontinuity or somehow breaking that uh, chain of causation or somehow redirecting uh, that experience then we'd be in a situation where error would inexorably lead to more error. One harm would lead to repetition or retaliation. You know, and there, there are whole places in the world where civil structure has broken down, where, you know, it's, it's basically in your own hands. You know, somebody does something to somebody in your family, and, you know... You don't call the police, you know. You don't go to a judge and sue them in court, you know. You go to their house and you, you know, go back at them. So you can see, you know, that that kind of framework on and on it goes because every time there's a uh, that kind of retaliatory uh, aggression it feeds the next cycle and there would wouldn't be any way to stop it or to rectify it or to clean up the situation or at least it wouldn't be easy so in that case once harm or damage was done then it would resonate and kind of last way out into the future you know at some point its natural half life would would start to manifest and you know something else would start happening and eventually it it would zero out but you know if you look at some of the uh, the most troubled places in the world some of what's been going on i mean how how far back you could probably say that about every place in the globe actually if you knew the history some in some places the history are just more visible than uh than others But what can we do to find discontinuity, find a way to do something different other than just being bound by this outflow from unskillful and harmful behavior? I think it's useful uh, early in the examination to actually take a look at what we're talking about when we talk about forgiveness. So I'll give you... A definition, this is my definition, as far as I know it's my definition. You know how that is you know if you <laughs> you 're a reader, <laughs> but as far and a hearer, but as far as I know it 's my definition, but yeah you know, I'm sure there are many others that have many similarities to this but so uh, the way I hold it is that forgiveness is the process of developing a skillful unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. It involves choosing the intention to forgive in order to end a suffering relationship to the story, to the people involved, and to current arisings that are related to it. It's a way to let go, disengage from continued harm, and from entanglement with suffering. So it's the exit or the hoped-for exit ramp. So I'll read it again. It's the process, that's important, of developing a skillful, unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. It involves choosing the intention to forgive. So you hear the resonance about intention. The Buddha says, intention always comes first for human beings. If you want to know the direction things are going to go, look at the intention. The intention to forgive in order to end a suffering relationship, the purpose of this is to end suffering. So this is actually an act of compassion, which is why I led in with the description of compassion. To end suffering, in relationship to the story, to the people involved, and to current arisings which are related to it. So there's what happened, the event. There's the story about it, how the mind holds it, how it frames it. There's the people involved in it, and then there are the current arisings related to it, meaning how it's still operative, in real time, in your direct experience. So this may be operative in real time, in your direct experience with things like memories, or it could be thoughts, or it could be resentments, or it could be emotions. But it's, st- it's happening, it happened, but the resonance is still manifesting itself now. Right? It's still alive. It's not the same thing that happened in the past, but that event that happened in the past is part of a set of causes and conditions that are now manifesting this, that you connect back to that. So forgiveness is a way to let go and to disentangle or disengage from continued harm and from... uh, Continued suffering. So, there's some other clarifications to make right at the beginning, which is about what it means to consider forgiveness and the process of forgiveness. Because that word forgiveness, we have a lot of associations with that. I bet if, if you folks had a piece of paper and I said... Okay, I want you to just do a mind dump in relationship to, wor- to this word. I want you to write down the first half dozen words that come to your mind when you think of forgiveness. Uh, most of you would probably not have much trouble to do that. So we've got a mental model of it. And uh, some of that, uh, those associations we may have aren't particularly useful. And interestingly enough, some of these associations are actually in seeming opposition or contradiction with each other. So here are some that have come up for me as associations with this. Acceptance and letting go. Then there's regret, remorse, guilt, shame. Resistance, anger, withdrawal, rage, fear, Judgment, condemnation. Freedom, peace, acceptance. Renewal, reconciliation. Duty, obligation. Putting on a false face. Denial. Liberation, detachment, release. Letting somebody get away with it. Right? Aren't, aren't all these kind of in, in the mix of the conversation... Uh, which engages this word. So, before we get into further clarifications uh, about that, let's take a look at the reasons to practice it. Well, there's suffering in life, and sometimes we cause it. (laughs) Eh? Is this true? And in fact, I'll go further than that. I'd say there's no way that we can get through life or even get through a day without causing some suffering somewhere. Right? I was sitting over there uh, a couple days ago in those side chairs near that plant and I'm sitting near the plant and all of a sudden I'm going, I'm not sure, but I think... It feels like something very, very small is crawling on me in multiple places. You may wish to move. I thought, oh, there must be like some little aphid or kind of like micro little animal over here because I'm sitting here... Silently being a good meditation teacher and not moving, but I'm feeling <laughs> 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 stuff, kind of, she- she- like like, uh. so on on that level, uh, you know, of m- micro damage, at least, we're all causing damage, no matter how scrupulous we are, you know, even. Even in India you know where you, you see people from the Jain religion wearing you know face masks so they don't inhale insects and you know sweeping the ground in front of them so you know they don't step on tiny unseen beings they're, they're still doing some <laughs> doing some damage because because we have to right I mean to eat to eat a plant that somebody has harvested from the earth you know they're probably turning over the soil to do the planting in the first place. So, there's a certain amount of damage woven into the fabric of the universe. So as conscious human beings, of course, we want to minimize that, right? Through our own actions, we want to minimize harm, we don't want to harm. With meta, we, we want we care for, we actually want to benefit people, but yet there is harm sometimes despite our best uh, intention and then sometimes we cause harm because we just screw up bad <laughs> you know and then sometimes we have suffering inflicted upon us and sometimes both things are true you ever been in a relationship where it was a bit of a you know a train wreck where you know <laughs> If you were simulating it in in terms of, you know, an uh, enemy or something of a boxing match, I mean, you know, you'd both come out of it looking pretty bad. And sometimes totally unintentional, right? Not even really, there was just something about the mix, You know, sometimes we're directly responsible for our own or other's suffering, and sometimes it it just is part of life. And of course our body-mind systems are geared to suffering, to notice it and to try to avoid it. So this is a really interesting um, paradox, which is the way we sometimes respond to injury and suffering is to never let ourselves forget it, In other words, to keep it alive. Isn't that interesting? It's like, that was so bad, that thing that happened. It's like, uh... let me think about it again. (laughs) You know, and just to be self-compassionate, too. You know, we know that difficult memories are stored in a, a particular way that distinguishes them from non-traumatic ones. So they're stored with a lot of bells and whistles and flashing red lights that tell us, tell the heart and mind to watch out, you know, you better take care because, you know, something like this could happen again. So the the result can be a kind of easily startled, easily revived fear, anger, fear response when something that even remotely uh, resembles this arises, right? I was on the downtown train, and then a person of this type got on, and they gave me a hard time. And um, you know, now every time I think about going on the downtown train, I start looking around for a person of that type, and you know, I get scared, even though I'm not even on the downtown train. It's almost like the whole system says, you know, you you better be on guard, you better watch out, you know, you better you better be prepared. And yet, this, uh, this pattern of keeping past suffering alive to pre- prevent the future suffering is suffering in and of itself. So then there's the question of, well, how, how can we actually break the hold of suffering and sometimes our uh, attachment to it? How can we open the mind to the possibility of freedom of living in the present with wisdom with the past taking its place as the past. And the answer to that actually is the practice of forgiveness. It's helping to develop a functional instead of dysfunctional relationship to these, these experiences of uh, wounding. And you can see the wisdom of that because otherwise unskillful actions, whether they're our own or somebody else's, can create a kind of cul-de-sac where we're locked into an unwholesome, unskillful relationship with the present suffering caused by those past events. And in that kind of way, there's actually a, a painful an unskillful fusion to the very source of this suffering, whether that's a person or an event or an action. So in order for there to be a way to break ourselves free from this round and round of dukkha, which is a Pali word for suffering... there has to be something different. Because the alternative is maintaining a tie of aversion to the person or situation which has caused harm. And sometimes that tie of aversion is to our own self with a particular kind of uh, categorization um, that we've developed that includes us as the permanent prisoner of that description. So without this capacity, we can actually be bonded to our most painful experiences. Closed around them, so stuck. Stuck there. So the Buddha and the Dhammapada um, says something about the power of the mind in relationship to these uh, experiences of suffering or difficulty. This selection is called Choices. It says, Look how he abused me and beat me. How he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Your own mind is replaying this episode. He did this. He did this to me. He hurt me in this way. He did this to me. He hurt me in this way. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Or another version of this not from the Dhammapada is I screwed up in this way and I did this damage. I need to keep punishing myself for it because I'm a bad person. So forgiveness is the, the way out of entrapment in the wreckage of past unskillfulness. So It's a way to start again, to unstick what's adhered to suffering and judgment, to thaw what's been frozen and begin to let things move again and to release, to open choices, to open options, other than being chained to a cycle of reactivity to a memory of past experience. Now, it's really important to know that forgiveness is a process. It's a process. It's not just an act of will. Right? I mean, we can make acts of will. You know, I forgive you. I forgive you. You know, and at a certain point in mind, mind the, the circumstances and the emotions might be so constellated that we can say that with sincerity. I forgive you. And yet... You know, we can't say, and I'll never be mad at you again. <laughs> Not necessarily. But we can set the, uh, the intention to continue to work with process. So this uh, intention to forgive is essential. And it is part of a decision that's coming from wisdom, And you could say the decision is not, no longer attachment to the present results of the unskillful actions of others or ourselves. And this becomes possible when we start to recognize consciously that it's actually in our interest to let go. To no longer ignore a truth or uh, tell ourselves a story in a way that gives us so much suffering. So there has to be a first recognition of suffering in order to help form the intention to find a different kind of relationship to it. So timing is very important with this. You have to be ready for the, for the undertaking and to have enough stability of heart and mind and enough safety to undertake this practice. Right, not always the case that those things are present. sometimes it's actually premature to consider it. sometimes we're st- still too involved with the original injury. you're still bleeding literally or metaphorically. When that's the case, then the most important thing is to tend for uh, tend to yourself first and to restore your own safety and well-being. So often we can begin this process in a very gradual kind of way by uh, for instance entertaining the possibility that we might at some point consider maybe forgiving. <laughs> right? That's a step and sometimes it's a very big step like do you for, do you forgive him for all the things you know that happened in childhood? Your whole gut says, No, never. Maybe your wisdom mind says, Not now. Maybe I'll think about it. Right? That's movement in that process. Maybe I'll think about it sometime. Right? That's definitely a step beyond the door is closed, the door is locked, the door is bolted, and I'm putting in a new barbed wire fence around the (laughs) door. (laughs) Now you've got maybe just like a little peephole in the door, (laughs) you know, you you put up just a crack, like one eye, just a tiny crack, slam it shut. Okay, (laughs) that's the beginning. That's the beginning. You can start to work it from there. Now, there's a whole piece here about something that's important, which is the uh, acknowledgement of, e- of error. The acknowledgement of error done wisely is really an important piece of this. Because forgiveness doesn't mean denial. It doesn't mean we minimize the damage done or blur accountability. Quite to the contrary. I mean, why doesn't why doesn't that approach work? Remember, I said earlier one of one of the resonances some people have with this word forgiveness is you know putting a putting a, a face on it or kind of like having to say you know oh it's okay you know or oh it doesn't bother me or you know any of those uh, things that can be um, socially lubricating in, in the moment, especially uh, when there's pressure to um, Um, not speak the truth (laughs) but really that's not a foundation for uh, releasing yourself from suffering in the way that I'm talking about so uh, author Elizabeth Gilbert spoke on what she learned from her partner Rhea Elias who was a very interesting being, apparently. Uh, a woman who was uh, born in Syria, and her family migrated to the, the U.S. when she was eight or something, and she later became a punk rocker, which you know was probably quite an evolution from um, her parents' uh, plans for her. But anyway, <laughs> so this is what uh, Rhea Elias has to say. This is what Elizabeth Gilbert says about Rhea. Here is her mantra on truth. Quote, The truth has legs. It always stands. When everything else in the room is blown up or dissolved away, the only thing standing will always be the truth. Since that's where you're going to end up anyway, you might as well just start there. <laughs> and isn't that the case? Uh, in these kinds of situations, um, uh, we can't, we can't phony it because it won't work. We just ha- we have to work with what's actually there as it's actually presenting itself, and not think that we can just plaster something over or skip around anything. So, this idea of it, acknowledging error wisely. Well, in many cases, the original harm was done when basic sila, uh, the precepts of non-harming was forgotten or ignored. And then unskillful actions of body, speech, and mind caused damage. Isn't that the truth? And you think of the five precepts, well, we took sex this time, but... The precepts that uh, the five precepts that we took on the first night—you know, not not taking life, not uh, using having wrong speech, not uh, taking intoxicants, not um, taking what wasn't given, not uh, indulging in uh, sexual misconduct. How many? Uh, What do you think the overlay between not observing the precepts and acts of harm is? Maybe not a hundred hundred, but I'd say that they're pretty close. Right? And the rest of the stuff seems to be random human uh, miscommunication or expectation difference or You know, the way suffering is woven into how things are. I mean, we see in some of our own Buddhist communities some of the effects of this, right? You know, and and sometimes um, among some people who have had teacher roles. So if, for instance, you take a community where... um, A a founding teacher has a history of uh, substance abuse and boundary violation with students, and that's not addressed within the community. It's not acknowledged wisely. It's prematurely overlooked or forgiven. Then you can have a circumstance where, for instance, in the second generation of that same community, you have the same kind of behaviors repeating because nobody ever came to grips with the fact that the founder was an alcoholic and a sex addict. So, it has to be named, right? So, acknowledging, acknowledging wisely, it's very important. So it's good to be clear about responsibility. You know, we can acknowledge what we've done in ignorance and or what somebody else has done and not let the harm go unexamined. There's a certain kind of way, you know, especially when we want to hold things together, put things back together, that we can kind of like blip over the, you know, what the train resulting train wreck actually is. And, you know, this is, has, has been the way, you know, a lot of things have been handled in our culture for, for a long time. You know, where we're the people who have been on the receiving end of, often have been encouraged to, you know, just kind of drop it and move on. And there may be wisdom in dropping it and moving on on the part of the person who's on the receiving end. That may be actually part of what they wind up doing as part of their own forgiveness and healing uh, process. But that shouldn't be an instruction from the person who did the damage. So. So it's important to learn to avoid harm by considering how the unskillful actions arose in the first place, what the causes and conditions were that led to the wrong action. So this is bringing in the power of reflection in order to seek understanding. So the Buddha himself, in uh, a teaching to his son Rahula, told him that in order to purify uh, thought, word, and action, we need to recognize and admit mistakes. And interestingly, he told his son that uh, he should acknowledge the unwholesome action in, uh, to his teacher and actually open it, open this. In other words, not keep it hidden within his own heart or uh, you know, concealed from... Um, the the person that was training him in, in the ways of non-harming and uh, ethics. That it's better to like to acknowledge it, to put it out there. So t- to open this behavior, the fact of this behavior, or this issue with the teacher, and then undertake restraint for the future. So that's... Uh, you know so not not just a band aid slapped on it, and then you know carry on, you know especially if there's a pattern of a certain kind of behavior that is damaging either to ourselves or others it it requires investigation, right because it's arising because of particular causes causes, and conditions, and it's very important to be able to identify what those are so we can look in the direction of what can be done to shift that or change that or to mitigate it. And then in terms of uh, remorse and remedy, once we identify what we uh, did which was unskillful, when we open to the harm that was caused by this action, we actually allow ourselves to feel why we don't want to do something like that again. Right? I mean, we've all done stuff. I mean, we've all done things where, you know, in retrospect we go, oh my God, what was I thinking? Oh man, was that stupid? Or was that selfish? Or was that heedless? Or was that... Right? We've all got, probably got, some of those things. So the Buddha would say, wholesome remorse is actually good. Because then that, that can lead you to resolve uh, not to repeat it. So to make the this kind of commitment to non-harming to renew it it's important to let the the painful nature of it of what happened register. So then if appropriate we can take particular steps to refrain from or uh, protect from future harm to ourselves or others. So this might involve things like, you know, getting psychological counseling or you know, joining a recovery group or, or something like that, right? If every time you you go out to drink, you get you get tanked, and then you drive like that, or if uh, you know you have a pattern of uh, looking at online porn, and then before you know it, you know you're you're uh, you know meeting someplace some. Somebody someplace and, you know, the person you're living with has no clue about this kind of thing. There's more going on there, right? There's a a web of causes and conditions there that you're going to need to recognize and actually address before you're going to be able to successfully refrain from that kind of behavior. So if appropriate, we could make amends or restitution or allow someone to apologize and make amends to us. Has anybody ever had the experience of um, having somebody who was part of a train wreck some point earlier in your life look you up again and say something like, you know, I, I know you... We haven't talked in a long time and maybe you're not so glad to hear from me, but uh, I'm in recovery now and part of what that entails is acknowledging things that I've done and apologizing for them. Has anybody had that experience? No. And how did that make you feel when you heard that? Mhm. So when this came back Yeah. It can be healing in it a certain ca- healing. healing for you to allow someone else to do that. Now that might not always be appropriate. Anybody had the experience of going to somebody else in this kind of way at some point and saying I did something and I'm now that I now I recognize how messed up it was. Yeah. And did it feel good to acknowledge that? To tell that that truth and No. <laughs> There's always an outlier. <laughs> it was tough. It can be tough. Yeah, it's tough. You know, because in a certain kind of way, you know, you're owning it. Right? It's like official <laughs> once you own it in that way. But, you know, this is part of the process of, of releasing the tie to others that's got the nature of hatred and fear or resentment or guilt or shame. Now, there is some discernment that's required in all of this uh, because guilt and shame are not what we're cultivating. They're not wholesome stays. So there's a way that we can take responsibility for our actions that actually isn't skillful. So this is to use our uh, moral failings as proof positive we're bad and worthless human beings. right? In other words, to close our hearts to ourselves. It's like I did this thing, I'm a shit. Well, maybe you were shit at the moment. <laughs> but there's something about making yourself a permanent. Right? It was a, a moment in time. So, you know, this this way of holding it, this way of claiming it, isn't, isn't skillful. And in a certain kind of way, it's actually uh, on the self-centered end of the continuum, isn't it? Because... Instead of becoming clear about what behaviors we want to change and then taking responsibility for that, we collapse into kind of a reverse narcissism that makes it all about us. Right? Oh, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. So shame and guilt are suffering states and and we need to... uh, And if we relate to them in unwholesome ways, that undercuts the real work, the work that needs to be done to liberate the mind and avoid future suffering. So getting caught in these disempowers the mind because it starts to lose confidence in its potential to evolve towards greater wisdom and goodness. Right? So we can be unskillful uh, and marinate and... and, um, our wrongdoings or lack of skill in a way that uh, doesn't help. Now, once we make the intention to move towards forgiveness, we you know we do an examination of the, of the behaviors. We kind of look at what went into it. We acknowledge the harm. We kind of investigate that, and you know make a make a resolve to do different. Or when we've uh, done some of that work in relationship to an uh, uh, in injury that's happened uh, to us, we've looked at the wisdom of forgiveness, we've looked at the importance of letting go, we've looked at uh, turned our mind in, the, in the, the direction of compassion toward ourselves and perhaps equi- equanimity um, in letting go in relationship to the person and the circumstances that harmed us we've done a good amount of uh, the work, a good amount of what can be done. And it's also important to remain open to the truth of whatever continued present suffering there is. So even after working with forgiveness, there can still be experiences of arisings of anger or sadness or fear or remorse or guilt, right? Because it's not like a a one-and-done kind of situation. Uh, you know, like you're using a, a whiteboard and you've, you know, written something on it and now you've got the magic eraser and it's, you know, all gone. It's more like one of those sneaky pens that used to be around when I was a kid where, you know, it had invisible ink and, you know, you'd write on it and there'd be nothing there and then after a while, I was like, whoa, I can see the letters again. So... Even after asteroids collide in space, you know, they break down into smaller and smaller particles, but every once in a while it may orbit through again. Right? It's not the same thing, but often you would recognize, oh, it's this again, or it's related to this again. So the wise mind, instead of going, Oh no, it's here again, I'll never get rid of it, all the rest of it. Recognize this, this is a conditioned arising right now of this particular thought, this particular emotion, this particular memory. Let me just work with it in real time. I understand what it is, I understand where it, it's come from. I have the in, intention and the inclination of mind uh, to work with this skillfully. Uh, while it's here, in the same way I would work skillfully with this state or this emotion if it arose from any other source. It's just an emotion. It's just a body sensation. It's just a thought. right? And over time, this stuff starts to lose its specialness. Then it becomes, when aspects of this may seemingly re-arise it's just more routine dukkha you know regular dukkha so we learn to work with these things with love without closing around them or identifying with them and recognize that this is like a form of karmic residue you know like this space junk that periodically goes through orbit you know it's there, it's there and then it's gone, it's gone taking care to notice when it's gone. There's a certain way in which sometimes we talk about our experiences and we'll say something like it's always there blah, 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 blah but it's always there this and this and this and this but it's always there. So a good Dharma teacher might say to you well show it to me. Because our understanding is or our way of working with things is when it's there, it's there and when it's not, it's not. Which is a much easier way to hold these things, right? When anger is there, anger is there. When happiness is there, happiness is there. When sadness is there, sadness is there. When joy is there, joy is there. We don't um, get so much into but it's always there it's not manifest, I can't put my finger on it, but somehow it's there, a Dharma teacher would be inclined to say, it's not there, when it's there, it's there, when it's not, it's not. So we can commit ourselves to continue to work with these states in a way that supports our, our own liberation. And you know that might involve something like getting additional support. You know something like working with a, a psychotherapist or doing some somatic experiences to help body understand how to work with trauma responses. Or something like that, or you know, committing to sobriety or entering treatment, all the rest of it. So, and just to say uh, something briefly about the the area of reconciliation. Does forgiveness mean that you need to, like, set up a weekly coffee date? (laughs) No. You don't necessarily have to have any kind of relationship with somebody that's been part of this experience for you. You may or you may not. I mean, there there can be beautiful examples of reconciliation between people where there's been harm. You know? Parents that, you know, were alcoholic and irresponsible when their children were growing up, and then at a certain point they, you know, get sober and, you know, come to their children after they've done their work and take responsibility and all the rest of it. Sometimes there can be a rejoining in that kind of way. Sometimes, um, no way. (laughs) It would be completely unwise. So, you know, letting go, forgiving, um, doesn't necessarily have to take any particular kind of form. That's really a discernment and a, a wisdom kind of question but it's it's mostly about your repair of your relationship uh, to your own heart mind and then acting skillfully out of that as is appropriate so more more can be said on this topic, which is vast and deep, but I thought it was uh useful to go into it tonight because tomorrow (laughs) you know what's coming tomorrow (laughs) that would be the difficult person and um, you know there will be some guidance in the morning about uh, how to select that person and how to hold that whole uh, um category of people as you go along with your meta practice. there's a certain kind of way in which um, we need to uh See the truth of the Buddhist teachings where he he makes this big distinction between uh, the kind of suffering that's suffering, profitless, pointless, useless, (laughs) don't get anything out of it, and the potential of relating to suffering in a way that actually is uh, enlightening, strengthening, onward leading, freeing. And, you know, the big difference is, is the mind relating to suffering with with wisdom and compassion, or is it taking a different attitude and approach towards it? So this talk was really an attempt to give some framing around this particular topic and coaching about Um, my understanding about what the Buddha would say in relationship to this topic of forgiveness. May the many seeds of the wholesome which we've planted here today come to fruition and be known in our heart, minds, in this very life. And may the merit of the practice that we've done be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings.